Do you know what it takes to become an award-winning international music artist and how to cut through the background noise and the negativity that happens around you and create and be creative for something bigger than yourself? Well, today my guest is here to talk exactly about that. Hi, my name is Vindya V. This is Art of the Extraordinary the podcast for those of you who's ready to play a much bigger game and leave an extraordinary legacy behind. I'm glad you're here and it's time to make your quantum leap. On today's show, I have Ed Roman as my guest. He is an award-winning singer, songwriter, a performer and a multi-instrumentalist from Ontario, Canada. He is really good at blurring the lines between pop, rock, folk and country music genres and his songs have been played on more than 100 radio stations across North America and more than 600 stations worldwide. Ed was nominated for Artist Music Guild Award and twice for IMEA Awards and he has won awards at International Music and Entertainment Association two times at Indie Music Channel, Radio Music Award for Best Americana Artist, and in 2018, Billboard Magazine Emerging Artist. As you can tell, he has won lots of awards. So here is Ed Roman. I'm a Canadian, born, bred, and raised. I fell in love with music at a very young age uh, in the 1970s when <laughs> music seemed to be like clothes people wore. They were excited about what they were listening to. And in my house, I grew up with three generations of people. So my grandparents, my parents and brothers and sisters, I had this influx of music that was coming from Eastern Europe, from American music, Canadian music. And I saw how excited people were. And it made me excited. And I remember, you know, buying my first Beatles record when I was like six or seven and listening to that piece of vinyl and almost wearing it out because of what it all represented, this cultural sort of identity and describing who we were as people. That's the philosophical side of music, like any art form. It, we're describing our situation in this moment in time. And hand in hand with that, being labeled the dyslexic, which now I call a gift, I was kind of put into that realm of academia was difficult and sort of gravitating to the arts, theater and music especially, I was very apt to, you know, embracing what that was. Friends, bands, college, I went to study music at college and it's always been something that has helped me express myself like many people in art forms and I can't stop doing it. I would say even if I don't make money in this business, it's something that I have to keep doing because I'm experiencing something and it's important for me to somehow articulate it. What age did you know that you wanted to pursue music as a career? Because a lot of people are interested in it and would love to do it, but a lot of people fail to do it because they can't pursue it longer term as a career and make money at the same time. When did you know that that's what you wanted to do? Well, <laughs> those are many levels of that question because I think from a very young age, realizing that my family encouraged me so much with what I was doing, from singing on a little chair in the kitchen at dinner time, songs like John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, and they were always kind of showing me off. And I thought, you know, there must be something to this because people are enjoying it. And I like making people laugh. There was a big part of that, like, hey, this little kid singing a song and he's kind of good at it, you know, and seeing people happy was a big trigger. And I went, you know what? I want to do this. 
I like seeing people happy because even at a young age, I identify with there's a lot of crisis in the world. And for me, having people in a state of levity or enjoying the moment and experiencing it, that was a big thing. The other level to your question is realizing about it being a career. It was an evolutionary process through high school and college, realizing I really want to study what this is. I want to know more about it, like when a mechanic starts to go to school and they're understanding more and more about the vehicle and how it works and the intimate details of everything. But it starts to become a part of you. And that's where it really then the third part of that is it's all encompassing. It's on a continual sort of growth period as we move through our life. And I don't think it ever stops. We're always in a sort of state of learning and experiencing. So for people that struggle with that, in that regard, I would say encourage to keep at it when you can and keep massaging those ideas for yourself. Because as I said before, even if it's not something that becomes a career where you're actually a commodity or you're using it to make money, it's something that is interpersonal to your experience and it allows you that vehicle, that vent to be able to share in something that you enjoy. I've so often been in places and people are like, hey, play this song because they like it. And that tells me something about that experience, even if it's for yourself at the end of the evening and you've enjoyed what you've been doing for the last two hours. That's really special. And it doesn't take much. It just takes your time and your dedication to what excites you. Well, from what I understand about your music, it's so different as in like, I cannot put my finger to say this is the genre, this is this exact thing, because I feel like you are mixing a lot of genres together in your music. And that's quite amazing. Can you talk to a little bit more about that? <laughs> that's a great question. And thank you for that. I see that as an incredible compliment. You know, at a very young age, we fall in love with certain kinds of music, you know, and I was lucky to have, as I mentioned before, a wide spectrum of not only family members, but friends, people that, you know, were my brother's friends that were like 10 years older than I was, family friends that would come by. And it was sort of little intimate conversations and philosophical ideas, even from other musicians who I really looked up to and heard them say certain things about that experience. So I've always tried to pursue this whole thing from a spiritual kind of perspective. And for me, when somebody says something philosophical on that level, I need to sort of examine it. So, for instance... An uncle of mine said, we were at his place and a gentleman was playing a violin. And here I'm listening to rock and roll music. And he goes, do you hear that violin? And I went, yeah, of course. You know, and he goes, like, listen to it. Listen to the melody. It's almost like telling you a story. And at that young age, listening to like rock and roll music, I was like, oh, I had this sort of epiphany. Like, it's a melody. It's a beautiful thing. I shouldn't ignore it. And then with that statement, reading other musicians talk about keeping an open head about music to experience as many things as you can. Because pooling of those ideas is what creates the new. The constant change of things is one thing, but it has that sort of like bringing ideas in your own experience, whether they're conscious or subconscious, uh, is a part of it. And then the other part for me is the relinquishment of my ego in the experience of writing to say, I don't have to define myself as this kind of artist, because that can also be sometimes difficult and been putting yourself on one of those kinds of pedestals. So I try to let the experience, whether it's the idea of the beginning of the song, the melody, the spark of the lyric, to pull me through. 
that experience so that when I look back, I can say it's a country tune or it's kind of like a country funk tune or it's like a spoken word piece with this kind of other thing or it's kind of African, but it's got this undercurrent of this rock kind of thing. I don't want to question that too much because, as I said, the spiritual aspect to the experience means I'm listening to what it's telling me. It kind of, in weirdest ways, without it being egotistical, is like with the David being carved out of the stone. It's kind of already there. And you have to sort of release the rest of all the other information that we're continually bombarded with to find those sort of critical phrases and ideas that mean something to you. And when they do, and you have that experience, it really is a special thing to have it unfold in front of you and then to be able to share it. So I try not to gauge too much on my albums. When I put out a record, people always say, well, that's like a country song. I can play it on this station. But then this is like a funky kind of number. I could play it on this station. I'm like, great. This is a wonderful thing that music has taught me. It's given me this cross-pollination concept to life in terms of societies, uh, religions, dogmas. There's so many different things that can change our perceptions of things depending on how we interact with it. So music, that's why I, say I take your statement as a compliment. That I like it when that happens. Who's me not to ignore it, to allow that to happen? And I found some really beautiful experiences in the process. Up until this point, and for in the past number of years, you have been going to a lot of award ceremonies and winning awards and doing a lot of great things with your music. But I'm guessing that when you first got started, you didn't know that it's going to go that way. So how was that journey like? It's a crazy journey to be truthful about it because it's fraught with victories that are personal victories, achieving certain abilities, technical things, like I mentioned, the songwriting process, going through all of that. They are like mountain high victories to me. But the experience is also fraught with a lot of disappointment and disappointment with the no factor. I don't want to sign you. I'm not interested in this music. The gig didn't work out well. There's not enough money for this. There's always some background noise that's occurring that you kind of have to juggle inside of the experience. But there's a marriage between the two because they somehow solidify themselves by the difficulties that we have to go through. They end up making us stronger in some way. And when those victories do come, acclamations, good gigs, tours, radio experiences, television, that's all the icing on the cake. And what I've learned is to try to not focus solely on the now. I'm always trying to think ahead. Even when I've been doing something and I'm getting messages from people, I'm actually still working. And instead of going right away to pay attention to what those messages are, I still want to create. And then I will go back and look to see what that is. Per peep, somebody's enjoyment about a song or connecting with somebody in the media or something like that. But to me, it's been a rocky road. But like working in a garden, and I've used the metaphor of gardening so often because I do garden, it can be an arduous task. You start off small, you plant a seed, you have to tend that row weed, you work through that row. And when you look back, you go, wow, that looks good. I'm sustaining it. I'm feeding it, giving it water. And in the end, as difficult as it may have been, it feeds you because of the entire experience. Whether or not you're getting the big bar of gold for the gig or the payoff for some licensing thing, that's one thing. But it, the reality of it is it's the journey 
itself. That's why I say they come together and become akin as one inside of all of them because I can't like there's crazy stories about things that happened and at the moment in time they were occurring, it was probably like, you know, really hard to deal with. But looking back, they're now funny stories to people. And some of those experiences have ended up in song. So, you know, as I say, it's been a rocky road, but it's been an amazing journey. Well, do you use particular techniques or things that you do to kind of turn out the noise? Anything at my disposal inside of the process. Before I, we got on the show tonight, I was scribbling things and working on some stuff in my studio. But I've been in the garden and had experiences driving in the car. I've got to pull the car over and start scribbling on a napkin that I found in the glove box. <laughs> uh, you know, and then it becomes, this is the thing for me, when that catalytic spark occurs, I need to act on its inertia first. And that inertia for me is the seed. It's enough. Even if I come home with that napkin and that scribble, and it takes me even a week to look at it or that evening to look at it, that was the potent moment of beginning. And for me, as I say, when I start looking at that phrase or grouping of phrases or words, it starts to pull me through. And before I know it, I'm like, oh, what this feels like this. And I wonder if I could like imitate that feeling using this. Or I was thinking about this chord structure and I wonder if this idea, will, you know, you're always sort of juggling little things to find out. So this is the thing. The method to my method is no method. It's to kind of go with the flow in that regard. And as I said, to relinquish myself to the moment so that it becomes something that's magical in the experience of writing. Because later, when you perform it or it becomes, you know, committed to a record, it feels right. It feels right to deliver because it came from that experience for me. And sometimes it happens quick. I've written a song in five minutes and it's simple and I like it because just the way it came out and I'm not questioning whether it's simple, but it'll have the most radio airplay in over the course of a year. And another song that I might spend six months writing because I'm deliberating over the lyrical delivery of things. I don't want to be literal all the time. I like metaphorical kind of things that allow the listener to navigate the ideas themselves without it having to actually be faced right away. In that six-month process of writing, I go, well, okay, well, that took a while, but it's okay because I enjoyed that experience and it has the same kind of potency to me. It just came differently. And it will get just as much radio airplay, or maybe not. But important thing is that I'm, I'm following it for that purpose and not trying to question it too much. I, I'll be like five minutes, maybe. No, 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 it's not right. You know, it came out too quickly. And, da, 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 and then I'll play it to somebody they're like, they're like, that's a silver dollar tune. I'm like, is it? And they're like, yeah, it's great. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I do it and, and people like it. So again, it's why should I question it? Even inside, as I said, the, my method is no method. So it's hard for me to go, it's this, it's this equation. And I think that again, that that can be a dangerous thing and scheduling what that is, you know, it can be unhealthy because we vacillate as people emotionally through so many experiences that we can't always be up. We can't always be down or in the middle. We are barometric and we go through these emotional changes and hence 
so should our artistic sort of involvement and and that's what i like about it well i guess that's the same case with like any art form like you can't have your own plans well you can but would you be doing the same quality output if you do work according to a plan that you've created and not really listen to the universe and what it gives you exactly and that's what people sometimes are like well that sounds kind of hokey pokey cosmological blah 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 and i'm like well listen i understand your perspective and it may be due to your experience but for me my experience relevates around these life experiences which are you know as I, music is a spiritual thing to me when I, if i listen to it or i participate in it or whatever it might be i feel more than just the speakers and it takes me through this process of somebody else's experience and like us in our conversation right now we're giving and taking we're talking about different things we're learning from each other and i think that's so of higher order it's like gold information to me and those feelings and conceptualizing ideas is more than money it makes the life experience real so i never really worry about you know if people if they do become critical about what that is and i talk about it because i've had spiritual experiences that are hard to ignore i then start to see the parallels in a multitude of things in life and relish it even more for that reason and makes it real well ed in the beginning of your career as you were saying like you were doing different kind of music and all the people around you probably try to put you in a box and say okay this is what you are or this is what your music is but in the beginning when you get started you don't know how it's going to be perceived so how did you find the courage to go through that or like what made you through that phase it's belief in yourself is the potent part of your statement and because ironically as a dyslexic there are so many self esteem issues tied in with what that means because academically when you're struggling because of pictorially and spatially is the sort of comprehensive concept behind what dyslexia is language matters to a dyslexic but at the same time its pictorial function is what is critical in its original absorption of the material. So when you have to go through literary things, a dyslexic has to read it three times. Once you have to struggle with the words, two, you putting the words and phrases together to have the comprehension and three, you have comprehension, you can now regurgitate, do whatever you need to do in order to relay the information. So that in itself is ongoing in my life. My mom was and still is an incredible woman and worked so diligently with me as a young person because I struggled. And when they wanted to put me on medication because they said your son is hypertensive and he doesn't know how to learn and my mom's like no, you're wrong. He's excited, he loves life and he loves learning and you're not going to put him on this. and she worked night after night with me but at that same time knowing i was still struggling put a guitar in my hands at a very young age and whether or not i had the lessons at the time she knew it excited me because i dabble on the piano you know and i try to you know make instruments at home so the crux of the issue of having the difficulty but then starting to excel in a place where my friends and family were like hey that was pretty cool <laughs> you know i was like oh 
wait, okay, so I'm not dumb. <laughs> like the teacher, <laughs> like the teacher told me at school. And, you know, I'm going all these testing facilities because I'm having trouble and summer school and tutoring. I went, okay, somewhere there's this middle ground for me. And it was my friends playing with them, encouraging me and working together, pushing each other. That's what really developed it. And that muscle in me to have that sense of confidence and a feeling of prowess to say I'm confident in what I'm doing. But, you know, at the same time, I won't lie. I'm always learning. I'm always trying to understand more about my craft because it's like a toolbox. You know, you go to school and when I taught and I taught for the longest time, I don't want to tell a student how to write a piece of music. I can assist them with conceptual ideas and where they're sitting mechanically, but I want them to express themselves. And the same thing with that said, every musician I know that is out there doing stuff, playing, working and writing, we're all always in a state of learning and dabbling. I know so many musicians that cross over and say, hey, let me get behind that keyboard. Well, you're a drummer. I know that's what's so cool about it, right? And having that experience, because to tell you the truth, it's humbling. And when you're not well-versed on another instrument, the experience takes you back to that simple, infantile moment of that wow moment. What is this? When I touch it like this, it makes this sound. I can do this. I've never done this before. It's all part of, again, that learning experience. And it never stops. I don't think it ever stops. It feels to me like a lot of what you do is more about staying curious and learning and not knowing it all and not even think that you know it all. And allowing yourself space. As a young player, I spent an incredible amount of time with my instrument, 12 to 14 hours a day. When I was in college, it was like five in the morning till, you know, two in the morning and little to no sleep, driving long distances, ensembles, going out to clubs to watch other musicians at night, continually working. And, you know, but it's those spaces in between that allow your mind to relax and become elastic to be able to think about what you've just absorbed. And that to me is the key. I love detaching late at night and watching like a documentary on the Younger Dryas event during the meltdown of the Ice Age or something like that, just to go away for a while. Because all of a sudden, my mind, all of a sudden, there's these little connection points that click on because it's not so filtered at that point. And staying excited about it is exactly the key because repetitiousness is one thing. We go out and play a song. You know the number. It's in this key. These are the lyrics. This is the tempo. We did it like this last night. We're going to do it like this tonight, whatever it is. We might open it up somehow for some improvisational thing or whatever, but repetitiousness is a part of what we do. So allowing that to not be a part of our daily life is what keeps that spark alive. Jamming. Just going up and making noise is also a big part of it and not worrying so much about structure. And then in time, things start to show themselves to you that you're like, hey, what was that? Well, that was kind of cool. Let me try that again. And I'm going to play with that. Oh, wait a minute. And it just starts to kind of come and click. For me, I also realized that if I get to that point where I'm like, hmm, hmm, what should I da da da? Mm, uh, da no, I stop because I'm questioning it too much. I'm not listening to the experience. So I go, okay, just take a break, go outside for a while, do whatever, call somebody, talk to your mom, whatever. And then I'll come back to it and look at what just happened. And then it starts to pull me again. So I always make sure that that fun factor or that excitement factor is there for me. 
because there is a lot of repetitiousness in what we do. Well, that actually leads me nicely into my next question, which is that I understand that you are a very talented musician. You play a lot of instruments and you do great songs. But I have a feeling that there is more to who you are that has made you who you are today. Other than the skill as a musician, what other parts has played in your life or what other elements do you think has seen you through to become the success you are today? You know, I love sociology. I'm fascinated by culture. I'm fascinated by ancient culture. I'm fascinated by, it's hard for me to say the word politics because I believe it to be public service. Um, my dad was a very devout politician. He was the first coalition candidate ever in the history of Canadian federal politics. And if the audience doesn't know what a coalition candidate is, the liberal and conservative party in the federal sense asked my father to represent as an independent. He won. He was in Ottawa for four years. He was the mayor of our local town for over 30. He was police commissioner for 14. And he was chairman of York Region for over six years. And he was a devout people person. And my dad was the kind of person that at the age of six, you're sitting around a dinner table with eight adults. And at the end of some sort of political discussion about what's going on in the province, he asks me, what do you think? And it really struck me then that somebody of that caliber, my dad, this magnitude person that I looked up to, wanted to know what a seven-year-old thought. <laughs> and for me, that gave me the impression that everybody has something important to say. And that's where sociology and the idea of ancient cultures and what we've said and what we've done and how we've interacted with one another is all sort of tied into that. His duties as a person, my father, in essence really gave me that moralistic sense of like, people matter. And the things that he experienced in both federal and municipal politics that were, without having to frame it any other way, corrupt and bothered him greatly, uh, taught me a lot about what was going on crypto-politically at a very young age. And my uncle was very also connected to world politics and things like that. I mean, he was friends with Pope John Paul II. Pope John Paul II came to the cathedral that he built on a farm that we had where we grew up, and he blessed the cornerstone of the cathedral. So my experience as a young person with these kinds of people in my life meant that the world was, there's something else going on out there. And for me, writing and my writing experience tied hand in hand, as I said before, with sociology fascinates me at where we live today in the 21st century and what is going on in such a drastic way and in such a beautiful way. But it all really depends on us as people. This is where my writing in terms of connecting with people and what I'm talking about in terms of my experience exists, that communication is the key. Communication, not just with our cell phones. It's a fascinating that we have the ability look you and i are talking right now from perth to canada and we're having a show and that people can tune in to this show from anywhere around the world that is an incredible thing and i mean people are like okay well yeah whatever you know no it's an amazing <laughs> thing when you grew up in the 1970s with a dial rotary phone three tv stations and people fought over one record player you realize that the steps that we've taken in the number of years are incredible as far as communication. So I'm always trying to ask certain things about where we're at 
and how we're feeling and how are you feeling about these kinds of things? I'm like, you know, I just finished writing a group of lyrics that we're talking about. You describe your feeling inside of your experience because I want to know. So aside from, as I said, the technology and all this different stuff, sitting down with people or singing them a song and interacting with them, there's so much learning going on in that process. It's like sparks hitting the ground. And why? It's because there is character assembly inside of the information. What I mean by that is when you hear somebody telling a joke or they're telling some fantastic story and they're getting excited about it and the delivery is happening and hands are moving and there's body movements and there's noises and character voices being, all of that even serves a greater purpose into the mechanism of what's being said. Aside from the story itself, it leads the imagination into deeper concepts. For me, musically, what I'm really trying to circumnavigate is all of this kind of stuff sociologically tied into sort of what the right thing is to do. I won't be afraid to sit and talk to somebody at a grocery store about growing their own tomatoes while they're buying tomatoes. Because I really want to empower somebody with that idea. And I've written about it in songs. And not directly like, hey, go out and plant some tomatoes, da 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 It's metaphorical. So for me, it's kind of like that. I, I feel like an electric museum sometimes, you know? <laughs> I'm fascinated by, like I said, even... Like, think about it. If we go back to a dig and we go down 10 feet into the subsoil and we start excavating everything from bone to carbon material from fibers and that, what are we going to find? Pottery, some kind of shard of material, and it'll have emblematic symbols, something carved in. And as we piece it together, this culture that we knew nothing about starts to tell us more than we actually knew. And not only more about them, but maybe even more about ourselves. So you always going to find me talking about something historical or something from the past, <laughs> even though I'm playing modern music, you know. And so that's a big question you asked me. So I guess that was kind of a big answer. <laughs> well, that actually uh, wants to maybe want to talk about Red Omen, because when you talk about leaving it to the imagination of the person who's listening, that's what I felt like when I was listening to Red Omen. So tell the audience about what the song is about, like what was the inspiration behind it? Because that's something really exciting. Well, you know, my name is Ed Roman, and I'm a uh -huh. dyslexic, and there's the whole thing with reading things backwards, seeing things from the right to the left. So the jumble of my name is Red Omen. And I thought, isn't it interesting that dyslexic comes up with the concepts of that and the flip-flop of the name and how that all evolved was humorous to me. But the thing about life, which is amazing, it's like allegory of myth. As sometimes I describe my experiences and the things that have happened, people are like, yeah, sure, whatever, Ed. And I'm like, no, go check it out. And they're like, I can't believe that actually happened. And so this is what is amazing about history itself that fascinates me and why in that song, there are bits and pieces through the song that are part of my life, whether they're actually happened or they are things I wish that happened or things that are so wished full that they are attached to the emotional content of what they represent. So story starts off, hey, did I ever tell you that I grew up with Red Omen? And boy, was he a neat kid, okay? You know, he had all sorts of cool things to play with, like a plutonium spaceship lunchbox and a bathtub full of Lego. Well, I grew up at a time when Lego hit the fan. 
And I knew some kids, they had so much Lego. It was like a bathtub full of Lego. And that moment in my child, you know, let's play Lego. We're going to build a house. We're getting cars. It's a spaceship. Da, da, da. It was like constructive, creative, and it, it filled me with great ideas. And the plutonium spaceship lunchbox, whether people believe it or not, look, as I mentioned, my uncle was a very entrepreneurial, world-related person. And the mine that he had, Denison Mines, where my father was a chairman, brought home a sample of uranium. And as a young kid, I just thought it was a rock. And I put it in my lunchbox. I took it to school. And I took it out for show and tell. <laughs> and when the teacher found out, they put me in a cab and sent me right home. And called my parents like, what is going on? Like, your son brought uranium into school? You got to understand, it was a mild stone. It hadn't been processed. It wasn't a tablet or any kind of cylindrical shape ready for usage or anything like that. But if you took a Geiger counter and you moved it over the stone, you would get a mild reading, definitely larger than background noise. So that part of the allegory fulfills the myth. In that sense, people listen to it and go, well, that's kind of crazy. And it sort of reads like a cartoon in your imagination. So that's what I'm getting at, that the song is littered with little bits and pieces of things that have happened to me and are not. The whole part about Jimi Hendrix and the UFO going to the space or the base camp on Machu Picchu. I love Jimmy. I fell in love with his music at a very young age. I made a pilgrimage to Washington to his gravesite. I know all of his lyrics intimately, more so his lyrics than most of his guitar playing. I love his guitar playing. I know a bunch of his tunes on guitar and play them on bass, actually, because I love them so much. But whether you believe it or not, my family had a mass experience in 1968 where this light flew landed between our barn and our house my mom thought it was going to hit the house she thought it was an airplane at first they observed it it did some really crazy things it was reported the next day in local newspapers the david dunlop observatory also our local airport that they had tracked unidentified flying aircraft that bit of story uh, at a very young age was always in my mind and it also it got me excited about the possibilities of what if and having it in that part of the lyric because it's a story i often tell and most people are like wow you know like either they're believers or they're not and for <laughs> me I, I wasn't there so i have to take eight other people in my family's word for it and i believe them <laughs> So that's where it all ties in. And again, that's about the lyric writing process, which I like so much. You never know as to what, you know, I've never met Jimi Hendrix. I love all of his music, but I never got in a UFO with Jimi Hendrix and went to Machu Picchu. So you never know how that's going to fit in and where that is when you look at it as part of your life. And for me, it's that's part of my life experience. So why I wrote it into the song. And now what's so amazing about it is that after writing it, you know, when you look back and have that weeding the hoe moment, the row moment, you go, oh, you know what? This feels like this feels like a cartoon. From the moment that I finished it, I was like, I could see this as like a child's thing and an adult cartoon. What the heck? I, for almost two years, looked for an uh, animation team or somebody to help me with it. And I found a wonderful animator who's now a good friend of mine in New York City, Nelson Diaz. 
And his ability, unbelievable. Like some of the people that he's worked with, Sesame Street, Nickelodeon, if you've seen SpongeBob SquarePants. Wow. That's, that's yeah, the Ted 2, the movie. It's kind of staggering the work that he's done. So the stab in the dark moment comes back as, I like the song. This is fun. And there was this kismet stuff going on where he was like, hey, you know what was weird? I was reaching out to other musicians trying to get like, I want to work on a video, but nobody was getting back to me. And then you emailed me. And then I listened to the lyrics and there's this thing about Machu Picchu in it. He was like, I was just there with my family. So I was like, I had to say yes, you know, and in that process, we've developed, he's developed through the music, this wonderful four minute, 20 second video that's been showing now at film festivals all over the world. And I'm so excited to say that we're opening on the 23rd at the School of Visual Arts in Chelsea in Manhattan coming in May. And the other huge part of it is that as a dyslexic, Reaching out to Positive Dyslexia as well as Davis Dyslexia Society in the United States, we are now working together. Red Omen is now a vanguard and figurehead for a fundraising campaign to facilitate tutoring programs for kids because the methods there that working with in the tutoring programs are not implicated in the Western Hemisphere yet. It's in the Netherlands, it's in different parts of Asia, it's in France, Germany, the UK. So other than raising funds and it being something that supplements what we need right now, I'm really hoping that the inertia behind this opens up a dialogue to education ministers everywhere to be able to talk about the simple addition to the academic environment for young kids because the results are phenomenal. And you'd be surprised at how many children struggle with dyslexia. And there's many correlations between certain things like <laughs> the amount of children leaving school and high school struggling with academia as there are entering the prison systems. So I see it as important as food and agriculture education and how and what we are teaching children is, is vital to me. So it's big. It's a bigger than me thing. And it's got me like spinning because I'm so happy about it. Absolutely. Well, I do notice that you do a lot of charity work. As often as I can, anytime anybody wants me to do anything for that, any like Cancer Society, MS Society, uh, Sick Kids, I want to get involved. That's where I was getting before. We were talking off air even. And music is one thing to say, I like it, I'm dancing, I'm having a good time, we're cooking dinner, it's background noise, whatever it is. But when it's a vehicle, like Steven Tyler in the United States starting Janie's House, he's using his ability to help girls that need help. Here's a place to stay. We can get you help. You've been abused, whatever it might be. That's cool. I really like it when that happens because it's connecting again and helping people. And to me, that's huge. So, and when anybody says, do you want to get involved for this event? It's charity related or it has something to do with it. Yeah. And usually anybody that I ask to be a part of it is. Anytime we've done the Relay for Life for the Cancer Society up here, everybody jumps on board. Yeah, no problem. We'll be there. Talk to you soon. And we do it. And I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed, just uh, let me ask you this question now. Given the career yeah. that you've had and these amazing things that you're doing, what would you say is like the best advice you have been given? Keep an open head about music in terms of we're talking music and your career. We are also predisposed to, this is my idea, 
and this is what's going to happen. And that's a good thing. It's good to be, you know, planning and forward thinking. But so often in our experiences, we don't know what door, window, crack is going to open. And I think it's essential to take it. When it comes, people say, well, I don't want to do that. I'm going to license my music to a commercial. Da, da, da. You know how many musicians or artists I've been turned on to because of like a car commercial or something? And then I'm like, clickety-click. Oh, Janelle Monet. Cool. Who's she, right? Like, that's how I got turned on to Janelle Monet. That's the key. And believing in yourself. Believing not just like, I'm a good guitar player. I'm that. Those are all parts of it. But it's feeling confident in what you've created that I've always found that younger people that are creating and struggling with their own apparatus still, the only thing that they're missing is committing to themselves and being comfortable with who they are. We are always defining ourselves against our influences. I can't write a song like so-and-so because it's that song. Yeah, you're right. Accept it. But go write something that makes you feel empowered because that's the key. It translates them. It's not going to be that song. Okay, that's fine. Again, it makes it real for you. And that acceptance of it is the key. Well, I guess, I mean, no matter whatever you're creating, like you have to accept the fact that 100% of the people are not going to like it. Some people are going to like it. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. And I guess you have to accept it and just do it for the people who is actually going to love it. Well, yeah, and I've even had this before where somebody would say, hey, you know that tune you wrote, Poncho of Ghetto Blaster? I'm like, yeah, I love that tune. They're like, you should write another one like it. And I'm like, <laughs> but I already wrote that tune. <laughs> like, and I love that you love it, and I love that song, and I love playing that song, and people dance, and we have a good time, but I don't want to repeat myself for the sake of repetition just because I know a whole bunch of people like it. It feels false to me. And you know what? I've been through those experiences where I've been lucky enough with friends and other people to go, you know what, we're pushing this too much. This is feels artificial. And when we break and take a breath and get away from it, then that other part of what needs to be there starts to filter in. And, you know, then you become pegged and almost pigeonholed as this, that, and the other thing. Look at Bowie. Look at how many phases Bowie went through. Even Tom Waits, American artist, composer, mm. From album to album, Nighthawks at the Diner, Swordfish, Trombones, whatever it might be, they all have that Waits-esque-ness to them, but they're very different, all of them, in his approach and stuff. That's what makes it exciting and I think healthy. So I would say be yourself, be into what you're doing and be happy with it. Well, what would you say is the worst advice you have been given? <laughs> Change your name. Uh, <laughs> dress like this, just things that are already predisposed to that happened already. If something came up and all of a sudden I decided to dress myself like a 20 foot dragon and there was some reason for it, I would do it. But I don't need to go out and be a 20 foot dragon to play music. I just want to convey the information as best as I can. And through what I've learned being myself is what is actually most attractive to people. If I try to artificially portray something, I can sort of characterize somebody's voice and make it sound so. That's one thing. But I had some really great friends and people tell me, you know, Ed, you know, when you're yourself, that's when you shine. So I tried to take that to heart because it's hard when you're younger and you're still trying to define yourself as who you are. As I say, we're always confronted by our influences. 
they are the best thing for us and they're the most intimidating thing for us. So, you know, you've got wonderful questions. It's so nice talking to you about this stuff. <laughs> Say, if you could go back to the beginning of your journey, what would you change about how you did things? Wow. Changing things, you know, I don't want to have regrets inside of it, but again, it would have to do with that musical self-esteem, that realizing at a younger age that it's okay to be more me because that's where when somebody else is more them selves and you cross pollinate, you really get something special. I've been so fortunate outside of that experience where I've found that working with other people, band members, the things that are happening in the creation process are about that when they heard the two. So I think, you know, again, it's finding out who you are and listening to who you are is such a big part of it. Well, what would you say is the number one thing you've learned about yourself having been through the journey up until now? How lucky I am to have friends. How much friends inside of my musical experience mean to me. This sense of family and camaraderie that if you could ever have telepathy with people, that's what it's like sometimes. I've had moments in improvisational gigs with Gus. So like the, the band would go, we'd drive to Ottawa, four and a half hours, play a gig, drive home all night, sleep two hours, and then the next morning go play quartet jazz gig at a brunch. We played this brunch, man, for like two years, but we were tired and we'd be like out driving all night or whatever it was. And that sleepy sort of like detached meditative space creates for this other sort of like listening and feeling experience. And there are things that occurred in those improvisational moments that you could never score or arrange. And you look back and you go, my God, I can't believe that just happened. Or you're playing on a gig and all of a sudden, for out of no reason, you'll play the same figure over a bar and a half rhythmically with somebody. In it, and you're, you're, you're stunned by what's kind of happening. The question is, is a great question because it's like, you're always trying to, again, understand what the experience is, but at the same time, you're not trying to question it too much. So when that happens, that's where really all of that creation that I've been talking about comes from. And it's unparalleled to anything I've ever experienced in my life. Well, Ed, it has been lovely having you on the show. Now, I know the new animated music video for Red Omen is coming out on the 23rd of May. So yeah. just tell our folks how to find it, how to listen to it, or any gigs that you're attending. How do they find you? Absolutely. Go to edroman.net. You'll find all my social networking buttons there, plus all the gigs that I'm doing, the release date. You can go to Red Omen, the video, which is the page on Facebook. There will be a Go fund me for a corporate and public fundraising campaign. And as I mentioned, it's showing at film festivals all over the world. It will continue to show at festivals for another eight to 10 months. So if you see it coming, paying attention to what's going on in social media, it's coming to a town near you. Go and check it out. It's a lot of fun and you'll get a chuckle out of it. <laughs> Absolutely. It was such a fun song to listen to. I told you before the interview, you guys should definitely go check it out. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. That is our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, go check out the show notes at vindiav.com. 
And make sure you go and check out Red Omen and the animated video when it comes out. And until we meet next time, my name is Vindya V and keep at it in your extraordinary journey.